0: Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. And perhaps even more so, because the book deals with a problem that has been around as long as the church has been around. And as the church has grown, so has this problem grown. And the problem I'm talking about is the problem of false teachers finding their way into the church and preaching another gospel other than that which uh, the Bible has given to us. And you know, before beginning uh, a study in the book of Judah, in fact, uh, before beginning a study in any book, and a lot of you guys have heard me say this before a number of times, but it bears repeating uh, again and again. I think it's it's good to take time to ask some questions, and learn some things about the book itself before we jump into it. And like I've told you before, I remember when when I was, I guess I was in high school, uh, my mother was a school teacher. My mother and my stepfather were school teachers, and they would go back to college in the summer uh, every few years to renew their certificates and and advance their degrees and so forth. And remember one summer my mother brought home a book, called How to Read a Book. And I remember looking at this thing and thinking, you know, can I read this before I know how to read a book? Uh, But I tried it anyway and (laughs) learned a couple of things. And one is, before you read any book, you know, take time to see who wrote it, what they were writing about, who they were writing to, you know, what is the theme of the book, you know, what's it all about? And if you if you do that, then when you actually get into the book, you have a better understanding and a better foundation. So when you begin a book study, even if, you know, your Bible study at home, uh, if you want to do, you know, a study on the book of, of oh, any of them, Job, for example, you know, Take some time to get to know, you know, who this Job character is, you know, and you know what is the theme of the book. Every book in the Bible has a theme. Actually, the Bible itself has a theme, and every one of the 66 books has a theme, which is subservient to the main theme of the Bible. And the main theme of the Bible is stated in, I believe, the 20th chapter of John where it says, these things are written that you may believe in Jesus Christ and in believing in him have eternal life. That's what this Bible is all about. From Genesis 1 and 1 through Revelation, it's written about Jesus Christ and that we may believe. And everything else is written in here to, to back up you know, that particular statement. Now, so, Jude, as was customary in his day, begins his letter by identifying who he is and who he is writing to. He says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, not a lot is known about Jude, but a few things we can determine by doing just a little research in the scriptures. First, his name is Jude. Now, Well, not actually. His name actually was Judas. Bible translators have translated his name as Jude to differentiate him between another Judas. A little more shady character, you know, the infamous Judas Iscariot. And there are something like six or eight Judases in the New Testament. I'm not sure exactly... How many? Because sometimes it's hard to tell one from another. But this particular Judas, or or Jude as as we know him, is the brother of James. Hmm. Now there's two James. There is James, the son of Zebedee, who was the brother of the Apostle John. He was part of Jesus inner circle you know Peter James and John who were always with Jesus even called apart from the other disciples I still think it may be because he had to keep a sharper eye on those three than, than the rest of them I'm not, I, that's just my my thoughts on that but there's also James who was the brother of Jesus and who was the pillar of the early church or one of the pillars of the early church, as the Apostle Paul uh, calls him. Now, Judas was a common name in those days because it was a derivative of Judah, who was one of the twelve sons of, of Israel, one of the twelve tribes of Israel, and from whom the Jews get their name Jew, Judah. That was the name of their nation when the kingdom was divided. There was Israel to the north, Judah to the south, and because of such, Jude, Judah, and or Jude, Jude is almost like more like a nickname. Like you know, you'd call a William Bill maybe, or uh, an Edward Ed. You know, you could call uh, Judah Jude. So. But because of this, you know, it was a very common name. But he first identifies himself as a bond of Jesus Christ. The fact that he wanted to be known this way says a lot about his his character and who he was. He could have in, he could have introduced himself as Jude, the half brother of Jesus. But he didn't. You know, James, the writer of the book of James, could have done the same thing. And it tells us something about the humility of both of these men and the relative unimportance that they put on being of the bloodline of Jesus after the flesh. To them, it is more important to be related to Jesus through his salvation. And redeemed by His blood. Now, I kind of think if most of us, me included, today were to have written the book of Jude, we might be inclined to have said, "Yeah, you know, Jude, the half brother of Jesus. Yeah, you know, hey, you know, I am family. You need to listen to me." But no, he didn't. He didn't do it that way. It speaks of his humility, and he introduces himself in the way that is the most important to him. David Guczyk, in his commentary on uh, the uh, book of Jude, makes this observation. He says, Without a doubt, Jude valued the fact that Jesus was his half-brother and that he grew up in the same household as Jesus. But even more valuable to him was his new relationship with Jesus. To Jude, the blood of the cross that saved him was more important than the family blood that was in his veins that related him to Jesus. Jude could say with Paul, Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. And by the way, bondservant simply means slave, saying I am a slave to Jesus Christ. Then he identifies himself as the brother of James. Like I said, we have two prominent James in the New Testament. Now it's very unlikely that he would be related to James the son of Zebedee and also <clears throat> brother of John. James though he was of the inner circle of Jesus didn't seem to pro- figure too prominently in the early church largely because he was martyred you know, not too long after the first martyr Stephen so he wasn't around that much and, and wasn't widely known in the early church like James, the half brother of Jesus was. So and you know, most Bible scholars accept that this Jude was the brother of James who wrote the book of James and who was one of the the early pillars of the church. Now, I keep calling him the early pillar of the church because that's what Paul called him. Now, um, but what they disagree on is whether or not Jesus actually had any brothers and sisters. Now, I think personally, the preponderance of evidence is in favor of the fact that Jesus did have actual brothers and sisters. And any teaching to the contrary only comes from the catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of mary. And this I don't think really is worth talking about much more than that this morning, but if you want to know more, you know, you can see me after after service. Now, we find the first mention of Jude, and you may be asking yourself, "Well, how do we know that he is the half-brother of Jesus?" Yeah, you know, first of all, we find the first mention of Jude in Matthew uh, 13 when Jesus was preaching in Nazareth, you know, his hometown. And the religious leaders get together and try to figure out exactly who this guy is. And they say, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Hoses, Simon, And Judas and his sisters, are they not with us? You know, sadly, none of his brothers and sisters believed in him until after his resurrection. And we're still not sure that they all did. But we know that some of them were prominent in the early church, in the ministry of the early church, because Paul tells us so in 1 Corinthians 9. Now, who's he writing to? He is writing to those who are called, those who are sanctified by God the Father, and those who are preserved in Jesus Christ. In other words, he's writing to the church as a whole. And notice he identifies the church in three ways. Those who are called, those who are sanctified, and those who are preserved. I want to look at each one of these for just a little bit. Yeah. You know, first he's writing to the called. And very often we think of called as being called into the ministry, or called to do this job, or called to do that job. But before we can come to Jesus, we have to be called. So Jude is writing to the whole church. Romans three ten through eighteen tells us explicitly that on our own we will not seek the Lord. And unless the Holy Spirit draws us, we are not going to come to Him. We can't come to Him. We won't want to come to Him unless the Holy Spirit draws us. John 6:44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in that last day. Romans eight twenty eight 28-30. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. Whom He justified, He also glorified. Now, I'm not saying that some are called and some are not, that some never have the opportunity for salvation. There is a general call to the world for whomsoever will. You know, I like the way that Chuck Smith explains this. He says, are you worried about not being called? Does it bother you if you haven't been called? He said, all you have to do is accept the Lord, and you'll find out that you were called. If you don't want to accept the call, why bother? Why worry about it? Now, he's also talking to the sanctified. Now, to be sanctified simply means to be set apart for a special purpose. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both ours and theirs. Now, everyone who is in the church is sanctified, set apart for a special purpose. Now, it's up to you to determine your purpose and to fulfill your purpose. But each one of you has a job in the church to work out what God has set you apart for. Of course, he has set you apart to be his ambassador here. He has set you apart to fulfill your part of the Great Commission to go into all the world in that in your case, may just be your little community, but to spread the gospel. We are all set apart, sanctified for a purpose. Now, I'm not going to go into sanctification a whole lot this morning, but it is also an outward working of that calling or an inward working of that calling. You know, the calling began our, our walk with the Lord, but our sanctification is a working out of that calling. Finding out exactly what it is that the Lord wants us to do. Getting to know Him. Getting to learn who He is and to follow Him better and and closer. And our main purpose in all of this, though, is to be faithful to Him. Faithful to what He has called us for. And then preserved. John records uh, Jesus' words in uh, John 10:18, 10:28. I'm sorry. He says, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And, of course, when it comes to being preserved, my favorite passages, if not my favorite passage, is Romans 8.35 and the verses following where, where the Apostle Paul writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or per- peril, or sword? As it is written, For your sakes we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but personally I do not belong to what. Uh, Pastor Chris Vanover used to refer to as the church of eternal insecurity. You know, I am secure in Jesus Christ because, like Paul, I can say that I am confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in me will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Now, I think these three designations are important to understand as we go into what what Jude is actually writing this letter about. Now, verse 2, he says, Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Jude is using the traditional uh, Jewish blessing. Mercy and peace to you. And he makes it Profoundly Christian by adding the word love into his greeting. And in the mind of Jude, just adding mercy, peace, and love wasn't enough. He wants it multiplied. Adding is one thing. Multiplying, you get a lot more, you know, a lot quicker. He looked for multiplication instead of simple addition. Now, God's mercy to the undeserving sinner and the peace that results in that mercy are grounded in His love that was manifest in Jesus Christ. As for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, the majority of translators and commentators treat this passage as if Jude had begun to write to them concerning the common salvation but had to quit and write this instead because of the urgency of the matter I don't dispute the urgency of the matter but but looking at the word diligent and what it means it makes me think that perhaps his writing concerning the uh, the common salvation was an ongoing process with him and that you know he had to interrupt this process perhaps because something more urgent had come up and i mention this only because i think it's very important that we don't read between the lines and express this as actual fact we need to take what it says at at face value and well i could go on about this but i'm going to resist the urge but <coughs> he is he had been writing, or was going to write, whichever the case may be, about our common salvation. Now, he's not saying that salvation is common in the sense that it is ordinary. Pardon me for a minute. I have a gnat here that is taking up residence on my, either on my Bible or on my iPad screen, and it's It's distracting me immensely, (laughs) and I can't seem to hit the thing. If I hit him too hard on the screen, it'll all go away. But let me get back where I was, if I can. When he uses the term common salvation, it simply means that we are all saved in the same way, and that there's only one way of salvation, and that is, of course, through Jesus Christ, and it's common to all of us. There isn't one way of salvation for the rich and another for the poor. There isn't one way of salvation for men and another way for women. There isn't one way of salvation for polit- politicians and another way for criminals. That may have been redundant, you know. Although we, uh, it, it seems like we as Christians seem to delight in accentuating our differences. These differences that won't amount to the proverbial hill of beans in the end of things. But we need to look to the things that bind us together, that tie us together. We have used insignificant differences to separate us and... And as such, it, it gives us the gives the appearance to the world that we are not together. You know, they'll know we are Christians by our love. You know, right? We seldom even interact with one another, let alone love one another. And I'm talking about one congregation to another. You know, Charles Spurgeon said. Upon other matters, there are distinctions among believers. Yet, there is a common salvation enjoyed by the Armenian as well as the Calvinist, possessed by the Presbyterian as well as the Episcopalian, prized by the Quaker as well as the Baptist. Those who are in Christ are more near kin than they know of, and their intense unity. In deep essential truth is a greater force than most of them can imagine. Only give it scope and it will work wonders. If we would just concentrate on our common salvation, the thing that makes us all the family of God, instead of concentrating on the things that divide us, you know, we would be a much more powerful force. As Spurgeon said, we could work wonders if we could just do this. You know, I am happy to be part of the congregation of Calvary Chapel, Princeton. Very, very happy to be and very proud to be. And, you know, it's nice to know that when we travel, you know, we can find the Calvary Chapel. You know, whether we go out to Las Vegas to see our son out there, we go to Knoxville, you know, we go to, both of these and there's Calvary Chapel's there. We can go there and we can know kind of what to expect. You know, because there are different styles of worship. Some people enjoy a much more loose and free and, you know, jumping around all over the place style of worship. Other people enjoy more of a liturgical style, you know, very formal, you know, can and and can meet God in in the liturgy of churches like this. I don't think there's, there's not anything wrong with that, you know, preferring one style of worship over another style of worship. The problem comes in when we say, you know, we're right in our style and you're wrong in in yours. It it is good to know, you know, when you go someplace else that you can find a congregation that has a style of worship that is very similar to yours. Thursday mornings, you know, um, the Princeton and Sterile Association has a, an informal breakfast. This is not anything that is part of the association other than the fact that members get together on Thursday morning at Sisters Coffee House and have breakfast. David comes very often. I go every Thursday morning that I possibly can. We have guys from all different denominations. We have differences in our in our beliefs, not not in our practical beliefs, not in our common core beliefs, but in our well. We have some people who are you know, covenant theologians, some who are dispensationalists, maybe, and you know some who who believe in in uh, a pre-trib rapture, some who, who believe in amillennialism and you know all different sorts of things that do, don't matter. We are bound together by our common faith and our common salvation. And these things don't even come up, at least not very often and when they do, they're not accentuated, they're, they're not to the forefront we we acknowledge that we have some differences in areas that really don't matter, but the unity that we have as a group, and I think David can testify to this, you know, is something very special that we, as an association, would want to foster among the whole city of Princeton, and not just here, but you know, spread all over the, the worldwide church. To bind us together despite our preferences in worship style and despite our differences in peripheral things that really don't matter, but come together in our common salvation, our common belief in the main things that are the main things. Believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he lived as a man, died, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father. And I'm not going to recite the Apostles' Creed here, but we need to remind ourselves constantly that we are part of a big worldwide family, not just of Calvary Chapel but of the Kingdom of God. He said, I found it necessary to write to you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. You know like all the New Testament writers Jude is very concerned for the health of the church and he addresses them as his beloved because he does love them, he does care for them and I believe that the haste in which he was writing uh, to them about their common salvation now applies also to the need that's at hand. And, and But what does he mean by contend for the faith? Now, contend is an athletic word, if you will, and, and it means to agonize, and it speaks of hard work. It speaks of something worth fighting for and worth holding on to. It speaks of something that is of infinite value. Something that is worth being guarded. I remember some years ago, I'm sure Gloria remembers this, being in Miami Beach and going to a mall. To get into the mall, just to get into the parking lot, we had to go through a guardhouse to be checked in. Once inside the mall, there were lots of jewelry stores and stores with expensive stuff. And they all, each individual store had an armed guard in the doorway, not at the doorway, standing in the doorway. Why? Because what was inside was extremely valuable. Talk about feeling out of place somewhere. I felt totally out of place in this mall. <coughs> but, you know, we went there because it was just kind of an adventure. But, you know, we have within us something that is Far more valuable than anything in those jewelry stores. That is our salvation. That we need to guard seriously. To take seriously. Now, I just said a few minutes ago that we were preserved in Christ, and we are. You know, it is His job to keep us. You know, until that day, like Paul said. You know, I'm, I'm you know, confident that He what he's begun in me, he's going to keep it till the end. Well, he will. But if we don't guard what's in us, we can totally lose our effectiveness for him. We can become vessels that are practically useless, you know, in the kingdom. If we don't guard this which he has placed within our hearts. You know, and we, we contend for the faith by being diligent in prayer, by being diligent in worship, in reading our Bible, in fellowship, you know, coming together to church, in witnessing, and, and by living according to the words that, that God has given us. Verse 4, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Jude is getting to the heart of the matter that he is writing about, false teachers slipping into the church. And this is what the rest of his letter is going to concentrate on. He's talking about men who have come in unnoticed, slipped in through the back door, if you will. Now, he doesn't say exactly what these men are are teaching, only that it's a perversion of the gospel, which, of course, is no gospel at all. Um, He could be warning against the Judaizers. These are the guys that gave Paul such fits. Jews who came from Jerusalem, you know, to all the Gentile areas where the church was expanding and telling people, telling the Gentiles that to become a Christian, first you had to become a Jew. First you had to follow the law of Moses. And of course that was the perversion of the gospel, which is no gospel at all. And other than these guys, most of the early heresies in the church either denied the Divinity of Jesus, or they denied the humanity of Jesus. Now, the Apostle John, in his second letter, um, is uh, addressing um, the the early heresy of the Docetists, who claimed that Jesus was not fully human, that he only appeared to be human. Now, this couldn't be right, because in order to be our substitute, in order to be able to bear our sins, he had to be as human as we are. It was man who sinned, it was man who has to pay for for our sins and John refers to these guys as those who do not confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Now this was an outgrowth of Platonic philosophy that said that anything that is flesh is evil, anything that is spirit is good. And there were people in the church, early church, teaching you know, that Jesus was not fully human and that he didn't actually die on the cross. He just appeared to die. Now, later, it was switched over to the Arian heresy, the saying that Jesus was fully human, he wasn't fully divine. And, of course, if he wasn't fully divine, then his substitution for us on the cross would not be effective because it wouldn't be a perfect sacrifice. And, actually, this heresy is still alive and well today in the form of Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I don't have time to go into any more of the heresies that plague The early church. I just want us to heed the warning of Jude and be aware that there are false teachers out there. I don't think anybody would would argue with that point. I mean, we know that they're there, but are they within the church? Yes, way too many. Uh, Again, I'm going to quote Spurgeon. He says, Satan knows right well that one devil in the church can do far more than a thousand devils outside of her bounds. You know, the the church has never declined from attacks from without. In fact, when the church has been persecuted in times of oppression, the church has actually flourished and prospered. It is from within that we become weak and we become ineffective. Um, Next week I'm going to talk a bit more about the the modern heresies that are corrupting the church in in America today. This morning I'm just laying the background for this um, part of the study. But he says these men were long ago marked out for this condemnation. Now marked out means written about. He's not saying that they, they were predestined to have to do this. He's saying that it was prophesied that this was going to happen, that these guys were going to slip in, these guys were going to, Turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, these are men who have never known the saving grace of Jesus. They just know enough of the language to fool those who are not knowledgeable enough in the teaching of Jesus and his apostles. You know, and not to know the truth makes it easy to believe a lie. That's why studying your Bible is so important and one of the underlying weaknesses, I think, of the church in this country today. Now the term lewdness, you know, we usually think of in the context of uh, sexual immorality or sexual deviancy or something like that, but here it means sin that is practiced without shame. You know, to me, it's an awesome responsibility to stand before a congregation and teach God's Word. Because I know, as sure as I'm standing here, I'm going to be accountable to God for everything that I say to you. You know, James said, Brethren, don't let many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. And how somebody can stand in a pulpit and teach something other than God's Word I have no idea but I do know that in this country today in mainline denominations there are pastors who preach nothing but secular humanism and even a few who are avowed atheists standing in a pulpit preaching to God's people I fear for these people and pray that they repent And pray that revival comes to our our country to bring our pastors and our ministers back to where they are teaching and preaching God's word to God's people. The weakness of the church begins with our teachers. The strength of our church is dependent upon our teaching in teaching our congregations. This is only the the introduction, really, to this book. When Pastor Bill first asked me to uh, teach uh, this Sunday and next, I thought, well, first I thought I'll do the whole book in one Sunday, and that thought lasted maybe 15 seconds, and then I thought, well, I'll do it in two. Maybe I will, and maybe I won't. We'll see how far we get next time. But I would, if you would, take time between now and next Sunday and read the book of Jude. It's only 23 verses, it won't take long. That'll help you be uh, a little more prepared for uh, what we're going to talk about next time. So, Roy, you have the closing song. Oh, I was about to forget. Come on up. Uh, David?